Well, according to the polls, religion is hurting these days. A growing number of people no longer claim to have any affiliation with any official religious institution. Researchers refer to these folks as the nuns, not the N-U-N-S kind of nun, but the N-O-N-E-S nun. In other words, when asked in a survey to check which box best represents their religious affiliation, they check the box marked none. They just choose not to be associated. But here's what's interesting. While religion may be suffering, Jesus seems to be as popular as he ever was. More and more people of all stripes are curious about and interested in him. Walk into almost any bookstore, religious or secular, and you're likely to find a new title published by somebody claiming to offer a new insight or a new theory into Jesus' life or his teachings. Listen to debates on TV and you will hear people on both the political left and the political right claiming Jesus as the rightful advocate of their particular ideology. And scholars continue to publish volume after volume of scholarly work on his life and his teachings and the movement that he spawned. It seems like everybody still has an idea about or an interest in Jesus. But who was Jesus, really? In the midst of all the opinions and all of the ideas and all of the theories and all of the traditions that have grown up around him, is it possible to have a clear and accurate picture of who he really was and who he really is? Or are we simply forced to just settle for what everybody else says about him? Well, it seems to me that one of the best ways to answer that question is to consider what Jesus said about himself. What did Jesus think about who he was? What was his opinion about his purpose, his identity, his mission? The good news is we don't have to guess. There are several occasions upon which Jesus made direct, clear statements about himself. These are traditionally known as the I am statements. There are at least seven of them, maybe eight, depending on how you count. They all fall in the Gospel of John. But on each of these occasions, Jesus said, I am, and then he followed it up with some description or some illustration or some explanation of who he was or what he was up to in the world. Over these next few weeks, we're going to unpack those statements and explore them in some detail, seeking to gain some understanding of what Jesus thought about Jesus' ministry, and just as importantly, why that still matters to us. But before we get there and jump into that, we need to back up a little bit and get some context. We need to set the picture, if you will. So I want to invite you for just a moment to go back with me in your minds all the way back into the way Old Testament, the second book of the Old Testament to be exact, the book of Exodus, the third chapter, 
That's where we read about a man named Moses. Some of us have heard of him. The third chapter of Exodus tells us how Moses was out in the desert one day tending to a bunch of sheep. That's what he did. He was a shepherd by trade. And on that particular day, he, he saw something that, that caught his attention. There was a bush that was on fire. But as he looked more closely, he noticed that even though the bush was burning, it, it wasn't consumed by the flames. And so he moved closer to investigate it. And the scriptures tell us that as he approached the bush, he heard a voice speaking to him, calling him by name. Now, as the voice spoke, it turned out to be none other than the voice of God himself. And God, through the burning bush, told Moses that he, God, had a job for Moses to do. He wanted Moses to go down into Egypt, which at that time was the mightiest empire in the world. And he wanted Moses to confront the mighty Pharaoh and tell Pharaoh that God wanted Pharaoh to let God's people go. Because Pharaoh had been holding them in slavery. Well, Moses wasn't too excited about this idea. He wasn't a good speaker. He'd never taken a course in leadership. He had no army to back him up. So he objected, he hesitated, but every excuse he threw out, God had an answer for. And so eventually God insisted. And that's when Moses asks a curious question. In Exodus 3, verse 13, Moses asked, saying to God, Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your father has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? Then what shall I tell them? Now, that's an interesting question in and of itself, and had we more time this morning, we could unpack the reasons for the question more fully. But for our purposes this morning, I want us to focus for a moment on what God said in response. When Moses asked God for his name, in verse 14, God answers by saying thus, God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites, I am has sent me to you. Now that's an odd way for God to identify himself, a rather strange name to say the least, but it says something vitally important about God's nature and God's identity. I am means that God determines God's existence and God's nature and God's purpose. For God to say, I am, means that God does not owe His existence to anyone or anything else. It means that God alone is the truly sovereign one, for He is the only one who is not dependent on some force or some person or something or some entity outside of Himself. Now to understand why that matters, let's look at you and me, because we are exactly the opposite. We like to think of ourselves as being self-sufficient beings. We can manage life ourselves through our own strength, our own wisdom, our own insight, but the simple truth is that ain't so. We are dependent creatures. We owe our very existence to other people. 
There is not a single one of us here today who had anything to do with our own conception. Now, I know that for everybody over the age of 16, I just grossed you out, but that's okay. We exist because of the choices and actions of other people. We are dependent upon them. And beyond that, the nature of our existence is also dependent upon other people. Those of you who were here a couple of weeks ago and had the chance to hear my father preach, for one thing, I'm tired of hearing about what a great job he did, but that's another story. Many of you have said that when you looked at him, you felt like you were seeing a future version of me. And you're partly right, because some of him is flowing through my veins. I not only share his last name, I share some of his mannerisms and his receding hairline. It's because there are things about my nature that are determined for me by my DNA. My height, my eye color, my skin color, the fact that I can't dunk a basketball. I didn't choose any of these things, and I'm not bitter about that at all. I wasn't given a choice on any of those things because at my core, I am a dependent creature. And so are you. But not so for God. God is not dependent on any prior cause or any outside force. God exists freely and eternally. And He is the ground and the source of being itself. That means that you and I exist only because of His willful choice. And apart from that willful choice, We don't exist at all. That's what God means when he says, I am. Now the reason we start there this morning in Exodus 3 is because God's statement to Moses is almost certainly in the background every time Jesus begins a statement with the words, I am. There is a clear and deliberate echo in those words because Jesus is very intentionally claiming for himself the same authority by which God made that proclamation to Moses. In the same way that God the Father defines his nature, so does God the Son. Which is just a long way of saying That whatever Jesus has to say about himself is far, far, far more important than what you and I have to say about him. See, our tendency is to make Jesus into whatever we want him to be, whatever we need him to be, or whatever conveniently fits our purposes at the moment. But Jesus alone will determine Jesus' nature and Jesus' mission and Jesus' purpose. That's what we are seeking to understand when we explore these I am statements that he makes. And with that in mind, I want to invite you to join me as we consider the very first one this morning. It comes from the sixth chapter of John's Gospel. We'll begin in verse 25, and I will tell you by way of background that we are jumping into the middle of a story that's already been underway for some time. It begins all the way back at the start 
of John chapter 6, but this morning, in the interest of time, we will start in verse 25, and then we'll unpack the story a little bit. We read these words, beginning in John 6, verse 25. When they found Jesus on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? And Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, you were looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on Him God the Father has placed His seal of approval. Then they asked Him, what must we do to do the works God requires? And Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one He has sent. So they asked Him, what sign will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, very truly I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And sir, they said, always give us this bread. And then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. And whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now to give us a little bit of background here, Jesus has just performed a miracle. Specifically, he used five loaves of bread and a couple of dried fish to feed a large crowd. Tradition says it was a crowd of about 5,000 people. And as you can imagine, that miracle earned him quite a following. The people were thrilled to be on the receiving end of that act, as would anybody in their circumstances. So much so that they decided to continue following him in the hopes of getting even more of it. During the night, Jesus slipped away from the crowd and went to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And the next morning when the people woke up and they didn't see him, they set off in search for him. And that's where the story that we just read picks up the storyline. The people have just arrived to find Jesus the next morning. Now, Jesus, because he's Jesus understands exactly why they have come. He knows what they're looking for. He understands that their bellies were empty again. That miraculous meal that they had received just the night before had been great at the time, but like all physical food, that meal was no longer holding them. That's why some of you right now are already thinking about lunch. And this meant Jesus had a choice to make. Would he repeat the same miracle from the night before? 
If he did it once, surely he could do it again. And in that way, he could just keep staving off their hunger day after day after day. After all, these were poor people. They were in need. It would be a reasonable thing for a God who possessed that kind of power to do. Especially when you consider the fact that God had done that very thing once before. Go with me again in your minds back to the Exodus story that we began to explore in Exodus 3 a moment ago. As the story unfolds, Moses did eventually go down into Egypt and he did confront the Pharaoh. And the Pharaoh did eventually let God's people go, although it wasn't without a whole lot of drama that we'll explore some other time. But in order to get from Egypt to the promised land, the people had to go through a barren wilderness. And food there, as you can well imagine, was scarce. There weren't many McDonald's along the way. And so God gave them manna from heaven. Every morning, this doughy, bread-like substance would settle out of the dew onto the desert floor, and the people would go and gather it, and they would bake it, and they would eat it. And so it was that for 40 years, God kept His people alive by miraculously providing for them bread for their stomachs day after day after day for four decades. Well, if God had done that once before, if He could continue to feed His people day after day after day back then, maybe He would do it again now. And so the people pressed in around Jesus, hoping for more of the same. But Jesus chose a different response this time. Instead of just giving them more bread for their stomachs, as important as that was, Jesus instead used the moment to teach them about a different kind of hunger that he had come to fill. He called them to look beyond their rumbling bellies to recognize that they have a deeper need, a need that physical bread alone would never fill. Jesus didn't fault them for wanting something to eat. That's why he had fed them that meal the night before. But he did call them to understand that beyond their physical hunger, there is a spiritual hunger at the heart of every human being. And that when it is all said and done, only he can fill it. A group of us, as you know, recently uh, returned from a trip to Kenya where we spent a week working with one of our ministry partners that ministers to homeless boys living on the streets of a particular region of that country. And one morning, we took a walk through a very poor neighborhood where, sure enough, we found several school-age boys sleeping out in the open, no family to tend to them not in school as they should have been. Now the leaders of this ministry were from that area. They knew a lot of these kids by name and so they knew how to make a connection to them. So they gathered several of them together as you'll see in a photo here in just a moment. We sat them down on a grassy hillside and our ministry leaders then began to pass out loaves of bread and cartons of milk. And as you can imagine, these young men tore into that food. Who knows how long it had been since some of them had last eaten. 
And when they were finished, one young man who's just out of the frame of this photo, after he'd eaten the last bread and gulped down the last bit of milk, this big smile came across his face. He looked me right in the eyes and he belched out loud. And then he threw his arms back and he laid back in the grass in the warm morning sun. And this look of sheer contentment came across his face as his belly was finally full. And as I looked at him, there was some satisfaction that came across me, knowing that we had been able, at least in that moment, to meet an immediate need. But almost immediately for me, that was followed by a tinge of sadness. Sadness because, number one, I knew that in a few hours that bread would wear off and he would need something to eat again. But even more than that, I realized in that moment that this young man needed so much more than just another loaf of bread. He needs love. He needs acceptance. He needs belonging and security and stability and nurture and family and everything else that a teenage boy his need in any part of the world in any culture needs so desperately and even if we were to stand there beside him all day every day and just feed him one loaf of bread after another that by itself would not come close to touching what he really needed now the good news is that our ministry partners there are committed to speaking to those deeper needs. But what we witnessed that day in Kenya isn't just happening in that poor village in Kenya. It is happening all over the world in the lives of every single human being, including you and me. Yes, we have physical, material needs, and God does not begrudge us for seeking to meet them. But let's be real honest with each other. That's not really our problem, is it? Truth is, most of us don't suffer from a lack of bread. If anything, we suffer from too much bread. And yet, we spend so much of our energies trying to fill our lives with more stuff. As though the key to true contentment in life is nicer clothes or a newer car or a bigger house or a grander paycheck or a larger state of status in the world. Now there's nothing inherently wrong with any of that. But none of that comes close to touching our deepest and truest need. You see, from beginning to end, the Scriptures make it clear that we were created by God and we were created for God. Our deepest, most significant need is not just for food and shelter and clothing as important as those are. Our most basic need includes a living connection to the living God. A connection that has been severed because of our rebellion and our sinfulness. That is what Jesus means when he says, I am the bread from heaven. Jesus is our living connection to the living God. More than that, he is the only true and complete connection to the living God. 
in His very person, Jesus feeds us with the very presence of God because He is the presence of God. He is the I Am. And over these next several weeks, we will explore in greater depth what that means. But on this Sunday, when we have shared together the bread of our Lord's Supper, which symbolizes for us His sacrifice on the cross, we begin by declaring that Jesus is the bread of heaven. He alone is the source of our salvation and the restoration of our broken communion with God, which we need most fully and most basically in this world. As St. Augustine said way back in the 4th century in a prayer, our hearts are restless, God, until they rest in you. Though these physical bodies of ours will eventually one day waste away, if we feed on Christ, our souls will be nourished for all eternity. I am the bread of heaven. Let's pray together. Thank you for feeding us with your very self, O God. Thank you for feeding us with your forgiveness and your mercy and your grace. Thank you for feeding us with the life that comes only from you. Enable us now to feed on you more fully through this word that has been proclaimed, through the gospel that transforms us from rebellious sinners into welcomed children. Cause us to feed on you. We make this prayer in the name and for the sake of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. The invitation to feed on Christ is there, but we have to be willing to sit down at the table and take our place and join the feast. If you've never professed faith in Jesus Christ and acknowledged Him as Savior, then that's the first step to take, to acknowledge your need from Him, to confess your sin, to declare that He is Lord, and He alone is the bread which can feed you. And if that's where you are in your journey with God this morning, then as we sing in a moment, I would invite you to come forward. We'll celebrate as you begin that journey. But all of us must continually feed on Him. It's not a once and done thing. Perhaps you fed on him in the past, but you've wandered from him and you feel him calling you back to the table of his grace this morning. If that's where you are, then my prayer is that as we worship together, you will feed on him again, that your soul may be nourished. Let us feed together on Jesus Christ. Let's stand and worship him together.